Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the uh, 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 As 30-year-old Gunter Padol sat in the dock of the Old Bailey, the ghost of a cut still lingering above his left eye. He was not the only man on trial in the murder of Detective Sergeant Raymond Purdy. As so was the testimony of his partner, D.S. John Sanford, and the recollections of the eight CID officers who stormed Room 15, and it is said, caused the culprit's amnesia, whether by accident or brutality. Justice Davies forewarned the jury, You will have to ask yourselves, do you believe Detective Sergeant John Sanford's evidence and regard him as honest, accurate and reliable? as with no independent witnesses to either the culprit's assault or the officer's murder. Testimony was based on an amnesiac with a death sentence hanging over his head. And eight celebrated CID officers, keen to protect their careers, their colleagues, their reputations, and the memory of an officer shot down in the line of duty. But was Gunter's amnesia an excuse, an accident, or police brutality? Thursday the 16th of July 1959, on the third floor of the Claremont House Hotel at 95 Queensgate, all eight CID officers would clarify. At 3.45pm, we took a position facing the door of room 15. A small room, barely big enough for one man, comprising a bed, a chair, a wardrobe, and no exits except for that door. Inside, as he washed, unaware that he was cornered, Gunter was believed to be armed and deadly. With the hotel's residents moved somewhere safe, this incident can only be based on the testimony of those eight CID officers standing outside of room 15. Superintendent Hislop 
Chief Inspector Acott, Inspector Vibart, DS's Chambers and Davies, DC's Morrissey and Vaughan, PC Collett, and his police dog, Flame. But when you examine the evidence, some of the details don't make sense. As expected, their statements describe a by-the-book operation by unflustered professionals in the midst of extraordinary circumstances. Being tasked to apprehend a suspect, to preserve evidence, and to protect the lives of the public themselves and the culprit who was yet to be proven guilty. There was no confusion of orders, no impatience to get it done, and interestingly, no frustration or anger. And yet, this wasn't an ordinary blackmailer. This was the killer of their friend, who just 48 hours earlier had been gunned down in cold blood. Some saw him die, some were at his autopsy, and some would comfort his weeping widow and crying kids. In a callous murder which had caused so much outrage that a fund was set up and many people cited this case as a reason not to abolish the death penalty. They were professionals, but they were also human whose judgment can be clouded by anger when standing before the room of the man who had murdered their pal, whose body lay on a cold mortuary slab. In court, they would testify, we were issued with revolvers and truncheons, which made sense as the unseen occupant of room 15 was an armed suspect fleeing a policeman's brutal murder. And yet they would all clarify, but neither were used or drawn, which seems odd given the threat to their safety. As their training decreed, it was said that D.I. Vibart announced their presence by hollering, Police open up! Open up! Which they had to, being eight officers in plain dark suits. And yet, in their statements, none of the residents three floors below would report hearing the officer holler, Police open up! Or even his name, Gunter Padola, or any of his aliases, to make him aware that it was him they were after. Was this why Gunter didn't reply? Was he afraid? Or did he not know it was the police? But that still leaves unanswered questions. With all of the officers stating the door was shut, why did they choose to open it by force when they could have unlocked it with the hotel's master key? The door was strong, so having given it a good run-up, when D.I. Vibart barged it with all of his weight, the lock didn't break and the jam didn't splinter held firm and it didn't budge. But when DS Chambers was requested to break it down, with all of the officers confirming that they heard a voice inside and the faint metal click of the door lock, why 
Did he barge the door? Diaz Chambers described it as a terrific crash. As the door smashed open. But again, the wood didn't splinter and the lock didn't snap. As Gunter had already opened it. The police's lawyers would claim that his amnesia, if it was real, occurred when his head was hit on the door as the officers stormed in, as confirmed by his left eye swelling and the cut above it bleeding. But with Gunter, seen not being bent forward as the police barged in, Dr. Larkin confirmed that slight concussion could not account for his amnesia, and the door was an unlikely cause. D.S. Chambers, who forced the door, would state, Padola staggered backwards. He fell over a chair and finished up lying face up on the floor with his head in the fireplace, as the other officers followed him in. It was a tiny room for eight officers, a police dog and a suspect. And yet, the crime scene photos show no sign of a disturbance. Nothing broken and even a small waste paper bin beside the fireplace where the struggle took place, being upright. As were the curtains, the wardrobe, the chair, and the bed. D.S. Chambers stated, I fell on him with my full force. I held his arms down forcefully to stop him using a weapon. And yet it wasn't until later that they found the gun. Not in that room, but hidden in the attic. So in truth, Gunter was unarmed. Dressed only in a vest and a pair of trousers, with the full 17-stone bulk of DS Chambers, on top of this 12-stone weakling, with Padola on his back, struggling violently and continuing to resist arrest for about three to four minutes, two more officers fell on top of him to assist in restraining the prisoner. Held with his hands behind his back, his feet held together, and several burly coppers, weighing at least 30 stone, forcing down on top of him. Dr. Ashby told the court, I do not know whether he lost consciousness from the head injury, a hysterical stupor, or such a weight upon his chest. But all agreed. Padola went limp. D.S. Chambers said, He stopped struggling. I drew DCI ACOT's attention to this and got off him, saying, I think he's been knocked out. He's had a bang over the eye. In total, he was unconscious for not more than a few minutes. Although having suffered a head injury, shock and suffocation, with possible oxygen starvation, no one called for an ambulance. No one checked his pulse or breathing. And he would be denied professional medical attention for at least the next hour. Some may say, what happened next shows the police's professionalism. As just 48 hours after their colleague's killing, 
they cared for his killer's culprit. Whereas others may simply call it a whitewash. DCI ACOT ordered the bed to be stripped and searched for weapons, which was why blood was found on the mattress. We put Badola on the bed, a blanket around his shoulders and a pillow behind his back. Of course, these sheets could have been used to muffle the sounds and to aid suffocation. But that's just conjecture. D.I. Weibart, D.C. Morrissey and myself, D.S. Chambers, gave him first aid. We bathed the cut over his eye, took him to the wash basin and gave him a good sluice around the back of his head and neck. He couldn't do it himself as he was handcuffed with his hands behind his back. But was he being washed or waterboarded? As being a lone suspect in a room full of officers and no other eyewitnesses? Who would know any different? It was then that Gunter began to suffer a slew of unusual intermittent symptoms. Padola began to shake violently, like he was having a seizure. Only again, no one called for a doctor. Instead, blaming it on shock or a head injury, they kept him warm until it ceased. At 4.15pm, a full 30 minutes after room 15 was forcibly entered, Although he had trouble standing up, Gunter was escorted from the Claremont House Hotel and into a police car, aided by two officers. His movements were slow and unsteady. At no time did he speak or make a sound or statement. And keen to protect his identity, or maybe to disguise his wounds, I had his head covered with a coat. with the killer of Detective Sergeant Purdy caught. This photo was front-page news. And yet he hadn't been cautioned, charged, or arrested. Recollection and written record are very different things, as would be proved by the damning testimony of Ronald Gray, that in post-war Berlin, Gunter Padola had blackmailed a grieving widow. It was the evidence the prosecution needed, but it was littered with problems. As with every statement destroyed, they couldn't confirm if his confession had been acquired under duress, coercion or assault. The storming of room 15 had some similarities, as although the officers were issued with notebooks for the purpose of recording the details to ensure a thorough record, they had failed to take accurate notes of the events. And even though eyewitnesses gave their statements that day, many officers didn't submit theirs for at least a week, by which time their accounts were suspiciously similar in style and wording. Which takes us back 
to the events prior to the murder of Detective Sergeant Raymond Purdy. On Monday the 13th of July 1959, at 3.40 p.m., DS's Sanford and Purdy approached a phone booth in South Kensington Station to apprehend a blackmailer known as Mr. Fisher, an alias of Gunter Padola. But with Purdy dead, and Padola an amnesiac, of that moment, all we have is the testimony of dear Sanford, who the judge would ask the jury, do you believe his evidence and regard him as honest, accurate and reliable? If we re-examine those moments through the eyes of Gunter Badola, they appear very different. As how did he know that they were the police? Being cornered, it is said that D.S. Purdy declared, We are police officers. Who are you and what are you up to? But what if he didn't? Or what? if Gunter didn't believe them. Gunter was a German, a much maligned nationality in post-war Britain, who as a fervent Nazi, had fled Canada owing to his criminality, had possibly been brutalized by British intelligence officers in Berlin, and a blackmailer who was operating under another criminal gang's turf. So how did he know as being dressed in dark suits so they could blend in. All he had was the word of these plain-clothed officers. Again, D.S. Sanford's notebook was incomplete, and his statement was taken a week later, having adopted CID's lazy habit in which they would finesse and fudge any details over a cuppa with their colleagues. It is stated that D.S. Purdy said, We are taking you to Chelsea Police Station on suspicion of demanding money with menaces from Mrs. Schiffman. At which he was cautioned, but made no reply. But why? At this point, he wasn't arrested or charged. He wasn't handcuffed or searched. So did this spook him? And as he was escorted by two men in dark suits to their car. Spotting that it wasn't a marked police car, but a black Wolsey saloon. Did this fill him with dread? Is this why he ran? And being cornered in the hallway of 105 Onslow Square. Is this why he made the fateful decision to shoot his way out? Nineteen fifty nine was a bad year for the police, especially in Britain and unequivocally in London. So bad were the beatings of lax, old lax, and the poor by officers in private rooms with fists, truncheons, straps, and boots, that in May nineteen fifty nine the National Council for Civil Liberties asked for a public inquiry as just three examples of police brutality by London officers in 1959. 
a Cypriot in Soho, testified that two officers in the presence of an inspector had beaten him black and blue with a stick. The officers were not charged. In August, at Chelsea police station, a black stoker was kicked and strangled in the cells. No charges were brought. And an RAF officer was beaten for two hours with a ruler. Only for the officers to state, he got violent and slipped when we chased him. The police in the 1950s had become too powerful and too corrupt. Sir Robert Mark, the Met Police's commissioner, would openly state, The CID were the most routinely corrupt organisation in London, with many being bent for the job, by taking bribes, dealing drugs, turning a blind eye for profit, fitting up suspects, and closing ranks when their crimes were queried. By the late 1970s, Operation Countryman investigated hundreds of City of London police officers who had facilitated a series of armed robberies, with one cop stating, all the blokes on the robbery squad had a drink on it, meaning taking a bribe, which went right to the top. Only when he went to court, every officer was acquitted as no one dared to speak. So common was this corruption that Sir Paul Condon, the head of the Met in the 1990s, coined the phrase, noble cause corruption. As with cops too keen to nail the accused without enough proof, it was said, at every station, there would be guys who excelled as scriptwriters. And the officers would leave their notebooks blank until the scriptwriter provided everyone with a carbon copy of the statement. At 4.30pm, at the rear of Chelsea Police Station, Gunter ascended the steps to the charge room. Chief Inspector Hagsby recalled, he was taken to the DI's office for two minutes until the charge room was cleared. His left eye was swelling. He had a small cut over that eye and he was in a shocked condition. Although lightly dressed in vest and trousers, with no shoes or socks, as he kept fainting, all the doors were opened and the fan switched on. And being deemed unfit to be charged, arrested or to see a solicitor, the duty officer phoned the police surgeon while two officers remained outside of his cell. At 5.10pm, one hour and 40 minutes after his head injury and possible suffocation, Gunter was assessed by Dr. John Shanahan as dazed, frightened and exhausted. And exhausted. Moved to cell number one, Gunter was prescribed bed rest and not hospitalization. But as he mentally shut down and his eyes swelled further, physically, he seemed to deteriorate. PCs Hannigan and Hall stated, he slept a lot. Which may seem odd, 
that a wanted cop killer held in an isolated cell in a police station known for its corruption and brutality would take a snooze. But was that symptomatic of his lack of empathy? A resignation to his fate? Or was he slipping into a coma? Chief Inspector Haxby testified, At no time did he speak or suffer any interrogation whatsoever. In fact, according to his guards, the only time he talked was when he requested to go to the toilet. Only being unsteady on his feet, he was assisted by PC Hind and myself to the toilet in the cell, where his trousers and pants were removed and he was placed on the seat. But oddly, with Inspector Burdett suggesting he had wet himself, the prisoner was stripped of his clothes. Denied medical attention for two hours, hospitalization for ten, and confined to a cell for six hours without a solicitor. His treatment caused such an outcry that it was debated in the House of Commons by Baronet Reginald Paget, a highly respected barrister and Labour MP, to Home Secretary Rab Butler. I asked the Home Secretary, what happened to Gunter Padola? during the six hours at Chelsea Police Station, which necessitated his removal to a hospital on a stretcher. My concern is not whether he was charged, but on those officers who beat him unconscious. To which Mr. Butler retorted, Mr. Paget has no right to say that Padola was beaten unconscious. He has no proof of that whatsoever. As according to the police, he was simply resting, and his hospitalization was owing to mental exhaustion. Mr. Paget would fight on. With respect, the people should be safe in British police stations, and that the idea that either vengeance or beatings occur in British police stations is utterly unacceptable. At 12.50am on Friday the 17th of July 1959, Gunter was admitted to St. Stephen's Hospital. According to Dr. Latham, whose notes, along with his colleagues, were exceptional and as independent witnesses would provide the backbone of the medical testimony, he would state of his physical wounds. He had a half-inch laceration over his left eyebrow a half-inch bruise over his left forehead, a slight swelling to the left jaw, minimal bruising to the upper arm and blood in the nostrils, but no evidence of skull fractures. Move to Ward B5. Dr. Ashton would state, it is difficult to assess this patient because he is completely uncommunicative. And because of his head injury, it has obscured his personality. That day, Dr. Philip Harvey, the consulting physician at St. Stephen's, sent a letter to the police reporting, Mr. Padola is suffering from the after-effects of a concussion and a cerebral contusion, a bleeding on the surface of the brain, 
I anticipate the need for a further two or three days here, as his recovery will be slow. And it was. Guarded by three shifts of two officers, 24 hours a day over the next four days whilst chained to the bed. Gunter needed help from the nurses and the officers to do even the simplest of things. To walk, to stand, and to sit. He had difficulty raising a spoon of food, smoking a cigarette. And again, this 30-year-old man needed two adults to remove his pants and to sit him on a toilet like a baby. Repeating the same basic phrase to the doctor, What happened to me? Gunter had no memory of his injuries, the assault, or the murder. He would have no memory of his four days in hospital, or even of the life he had lived up till that moment, except for a few fragments which flashed before his mind. When asked, he didn't even know his own name. Dr. Harvey confirmed, It was clear that severe retrograde amnesia was present. Where you can't recall memories formed before the incident that caused the amnesia. But that he is fit to be interviewed and to understand the nature of the charge. But he is not able at this moment to act in a testamentary capacity regarding the events leading up to his admission because of the presence of retrograde amnesia. His bruises and cuts would heal. But so painfully slow was his mental recovery that even eight weeks later, when Gunter stood trial at the Old Bailey for the murder of D.S. Purdy, although nine days of the 11-day trial was solely to decide if he was fit to stand or give evidence, he could recall nothing. On Monday the 20th of July, four days after the incident, Mr. Williams, Gunter's court-appointed solicitor, was permitted to speak to his client. But so damaged was his memory that when he was handed a document to sign, he had no idea what it meant, and his solicitor had to spell his name for him. At 2.50pm, back at Chelsea Police Station, and this time with his solicitor present, Gunter was formally charged by Superintendent Hislop for the murder of D.S. Purdy. He was cautioned, but made no reply, before being committed to criminal trial, following a hearing at West London Magistrates Court. Tried at the Old Bailey for a crime he couldn't recall, the police would deny any accusations of brutality, statement doctoring, or a cover-up. Their defense was that, laughable as it may seem, that Gunter's state of amnesia was merely a convenient ploy to escape a death sentence at the hangman's noose. Gunter was unable to testify against these eight celebrated CID officers, who were all keen to protect their careers, their colleagues, their reputations, and the memory of a police officer killed in the line of duty. It was a case 
which Justice Edmund Davies would state, was reliant on whether the jury believed them and could or should regard D.S. Sanford and his colleagues as honest, accurate and reliable. Recollection and written record are two very different things. But if the police's statements were an accurate report of the events, as they would vehemently claim, that left the jury with an odd quandary. If the police were telling the truth, the Gunter Bedola was lying. Part 3 of 3 of Shattered Memory continues next week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. That's not too bad. That's not too bad. Taking your hat off. Taking your hat off. There we go. Core lummy, there we go, folks. That was part two. Oh, I'm doing all this out of sequence at the moment. Also, welcome to Extra Mile, unscripted, unedited bit. Blow, 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 blow. Do some extra stuff. Uh, have a chat. Maybe have a cup of tea. I'm not going to have a cup of tea. Um, not going to have a cake because I'm still on my diet. Eva's got me on a strict diet. I, I, I'm eating a carrot. I'm eating a carrot. Carrot and vegetables every every two hours throughout the day to keep my metabolism good and make sure that I don't put on weight. I think she wants me nice and skinny because then she can go, oh, now you're too skinny, and then she can fatten me up. She loves doing that. And then she, she every hour she comes by and she slaps my ass and goes, that, that ass isn't fat enough, fat boy. Or she stands in front of me and then she wobbles me and she watches my tits go up and down and she that she enjoys that. Oh, if it keeps her happy. So, yes. Um, uh, so, just recording this. It, everything's out of sequence at the moment for me. Uh, obviously, because um, having a good couple of days, even though I still can't see out my left eye, 
and my right eye is okay because uh, I'm not in any pain at the moment. I've got the the painkillers at the right level, uh, hence I'm able to sleep. So I'm sounding all right. Uh, I'm recording all of the na- all of the narration for uh, parts one, two, and three back to back. Uh, and then I can edit the rest afterwards, which is good. It got to a point with my eye when I was like thinking, shit, do I do Eliza Crease and the Honeymoon from Hell? Is that the last episode? And then I had some backup daily entries I could put out. And then I was like, shit, what am I going to do if I can't write anymore? But um, I think I think my eye seems to be doing okay. I think I'll be injured for quite a while. But as long as I'm not in a pain, that should be all right. Ah, what else is going on? I'm, I'm not going to have a... Um, uh a tea i'm all right at the moment i'm gonna go to the the coffee shop that does a nice chamomile tea in a bit but i'm gonna have there we go diet coke mmm chemical mmm oh yummy chemicals so that's all good um uh just move my boat a tiny bit i can't move it too far because i can't see but i moved it about 100 feet because just just opposite me or just down from opposite me was two little dogs who would always stand on the boat and bark all day and then just further up was another dog and it would they would bark back and forth and then in the middle even worse someone's got a cockerel fucking cockerel and you think oh that's nice the cockerel can wake you up when it's dawn but as we know cockerels are little bastards aren't they and they don't they don't it literally all day every hour it goes cockadoodloo 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 and even worse, it keeps doing it throughout the night. So uh, I'm a light sleeper, and sometimes I'll wake up and I'll hear cockadoodle at two a.m. and you just go, "You little shit!" Oh, I'd love, I'd, I'd love to. I'm not into animal cruelty, but for that one, I would, I would take pleasure in cutting his head off and sticking him in the oven and serving him with some nice potatoes. And I would enjoy every single mouthful of that little mouthy bastard, and then I would shit him out. Yeah. Ah, uh, so what else is going on? What else is going on? Uh, I went to a mate's wedding recently. That was really nice. Uh, all went really well. I had one job to do because because they uh, they did it in they did the reception in their parents' house. They go why? Because it's a second wedding, so they didn't want a big one. They wanted to keep it low key and just just all the all the key people. So they're like Mike, we got a good job for you. Uh, can you can you make sure because the the fridge wasn't working well? So can can you? Uh, fill up the bath with ice during the day it was a hot day it was like 29 degrees can you fill up the bath with our ice fill it full of beers and all that and so people could have cold drinks all night so i was like right i'm going to do that job properly uh i filled it up with 65 kilos of ice which i got from a, a supermarket about half a mile away so i was shuttling back and forth from the supermarket to there the, the lady I, I always went to the same lady at the, the till and she knew exactly what i was doing and she's like how's it going is it all going well yes it, it was it was so good the bath was full of beers i got one side i I split it into different beers different kinds of wines different things like prosecco and stuff like that and soft drinks for people like that and filled it full of ice and it was so good <laughs> it was like one time during the start of the, the the wedding the reception i was like where is everyone and i realized there was just a crowd of people in the bathroom staring uh, at my bath of ice so there we go if you go into social media you will see it i think it was at the start of june my bath of ice there you go although it was so much ice that i broke my bag i had to go into sports direct where i got the bag from and say oh it broke i don't know how it broke it both straps snapped it snapped because of all the ice i was carrying in a heat wave but there we go that's that uh what else is going on um 
I am because uh, because of my punctured eye. Really annoying. I was meant to be going to see my sister in America next week, but I don't know whether I can do it because I don't I don't know whether I've waiting to see from my eye specialist whether I can be allowed to go on a flight because I have because uh, of a punctured eye. My eye has different pressures in the eye, so I don't know whether even though an aircraft is pressurised, I need to get his sign off, which is really annoying because I've spent a grand and a half to fly out there now i might not be able to go there really annoying anyway anyway we'll see how it goes it'd be nice to go there um thank you this week to uh two patreon subscribers so thank you to olivia totten jim pal jim balfour so thank you olivia and jim thank you so much for becoming patreon subscribers obviously you get goodies in the post uh some of which i'll be sending off today obviously that's not today when you hear this this is in the past Ooh, in the past in the past um so thank you for that and obviously uh, with this you get lots of lots of uh crime scene photos and things like that which are uh, on the patreon account hidden away only on patreon so thank you so much for supporting the show it's very much appreciated uh let's do some quiz questions uh 10 quiz questions um and we'll do the answers to them very shortly so here we go um question number one what was the name of the judge in the old bailey trial question number two how many people were in room 15 when the police stormed in? Question number three. What weight was DS Chambers who broke down the door? Question number four. What alias was Gunter using when he was apprehended by the police at the tube station? Oh, burp. burpees. Question number five. In May 1959, who asked for a public inquiry into police beatings? Question number six. How did Sir Paul Condon, the Met Police Commissioner, describe corruption in the police force in the 1990s? Question number seven. What was Gunter wearing when he was arrested? Question number eight. What was Gunter doing when the police broke down the door? Question number nine, name the two officers who guarded his cell in Chelsea Police Station. Good luck if you got that one, because there's a lot of names in this episode. And question number ten, why did the police say he was removed to hospital? So, uh, let's dive this is uh, um so this is uh, this whole episode although these three parties is all about uh recollections and uh not only is this all about uh amnesia we'll get into more about that next week as well about gunter's amnesia but when i was going through the the police files on this i thought actually this is a really interesting case because what we're actually dealing with here is recollection and statements and if you go back to uh, the soho strangler and you see some of the, the support episodes i did with that a lot of it is about how how people remember things and how they don't remember things and how people get easily confused and you know even if you take a statement immediately you could get a percentage right but then if if say with the cid um they did their statements a week later and it is said that they did their statements together which you're not meant to do um uh, you you get different recollections for people so it's it's fascinating when you go through it with um with the cid officers I've, I've kind of referenced it in here but when you read their statements it's it's almost like as mentioned in this episode when uh it was said that in some police stations they would have inverted commas script editors who would sit down and would 
work out the statement first then all the officers would get the statement and they'd read it and they'd some of them would almost do it like a cut and paste job others would add their own flourishes to it but pretty much everything was uh, exactly as it was and that's really what you get here so with with these officers all uh oops with these officers uh all doing their statements a week later of course everything's going to be a bit messy so that seemed to be their way it wasn't really um there seemed to be a real arrogance amongst them as as like oh we won't do our statements now we'll do it in a week when we can be bothered which which is not really how you should run an investigation um so also that kind of breaks down uh, the case the case prior to the murder so you've got the murder itself and then you've got the apprehension of gunter by the two detectives so ds sanford and ds purdy now given the fact that ds purdy is dead therefore he didn't put any notes in his notebook and he didn't obviously didn't do a witness statement because he was dead uh because gunter was diagnosed with amnesia and he can't remember anything from the monday when he left the hospital uh prior to that which includes his assault in room 15 i put that in air quotes uh and uh the murder itself because there's no other people there the the only real witness that we actually have there is mrs uh, malvina jones schiffman who uh ds purdy said uh mrs schiffman this is uh this is sergeant purdy please remember my name and then he put down the phone that's all she remembers and she stated that uh, in her report so that's fine but he, she didn't hear anything else after that moment because the phone phone was put down so we don't have any corroborative witnesses for that there's no witnesses to the arrest inside south kensington uh, south kensington tube station so you, ha you kind of have the moment where if you think about it the officers are turning up they're not in police uniforms uh you've got gunter who's kind of has a fear of authority coming from kind of war-torn berlin um they're not in uniforms at all they're plain clothed um they say we are police officers who are you what are you up to this is the kind of thing do they show their badges it, it would be something that they do but did did they do that let's not forget that this is chelsea cid they're kind of a force unto their own they have their own kind of rules that they live by so it could be that maybe they didn't do that maybe he didn't believe there were policemen maybe he believed that they were criminals and he'd he was working on their turf so it's when you start boring a lot of stuff down it's hard to kind of um you can kind of see why why he would run why he would panic although as we've seen with um the blackmail charge from the uh from berlin the one that the one that we'll keep go, going back to in this uh series because it's, it's kind of quite important that you can kind of see what he was doing 10 years earlier um you can see that he is prone to fleeing he he he's a small-time criminal prone to fleeing um not adverse to kind of suggesting that he may kill someone if he needs to to escape or um yeah doing what he needs to do um we john sanford said uh the number of the call box was knights knightsbridge 2355 uh uh, it was the accused in the phone box. He had a phone in his left hand and his right hand. He was fingering ooh, the pages of a notebook. Um, he was deliberately fingering the pages of the notebook. Um, 
I didn't explain this in the first episode because it's kind of un, unimportant, but he was pretending that this was all the evidence that he'd got of uh, Malvina Jones Schiffman, i.e. Vern O'Hara, saying, oh yeah, I've got all these documents about you and what you're up to with your secret love life. It wasn't, it was his shitty little notebook, of which he'd, he'd scrawled in his notes, which uh, we we heard about last week and this week. Um he said, uh, Purdy and I opened the door of the telephone kiosk. Sergeant Purdy took the telephone out of the man's hand and with his other hand picked up the notebook. Purdy spoke into the phone in the presence and uh, presence and hearing of the accused and said, Mrs. Schiffman, this is Sergeant Purdy. Remember my name. That's kind of fateful, really, isn't it? Uh, he then put down the phone. The prisoner had edged backwards out of the kiosk and I caught hold of him. After Purdy had put down the receiver... Uh, he asked the prisoner, we are police officers, who are you and what are you up to? The prisoner made no reply. Uh, this seems to be something that uh, Gunter does a lot, that he doesn't reply to things. Uh, you'll see that in uh, the, the, the Berlin Statement as well. Uh, Sergeant Purdy uh, said, uh, we are going to take you to Chelsea Police Station on suspicion of demanding money with a menace from Mrs. Schiffman. He was cautioned but made no reply. Now, as mentioned in the episode, this is kind of the thing when you look at it. They're in plain clothes. Did they show their ID? They said they were policemen, but how could he prove it? Uh, they didn't handcuff him. They didn't arrest him. Um, so obviously at that point, I mean, that that's kind of at their, really at their discretion. Do you know, he's really just a suspect at that moment. All they've really got when you think about it is a man who's on the phone and they've, it's not like they're on co immediate communication with the telephone exchange and going, yeah, 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 he's still on the phone now. It's like two minutes ago when they were on the phone, the kiosk, uh, the, the exchange people said, yeah, he's on this phone right now. Two minutes later, they sped there. They ran, it could be someone else. It could be someone entirely different. So they don't know it's Gunter Padola. They don't know the name Gunter Padola. They don't know what the man looks like. All they know is that he's on the phone to Mrs. Schiffman, but it could be someone else. It could be someone else who just happened to be calling her. So uh, they've got to be really careful by this point. And don't forget, they've only got a limited amount of time to question him. So they've got to make sure they've got everything ready. But they can detain him, which is what they're doing. Uh, Sergeant Sanford said that we, we went, then went up the stairs and into Sydney Place. Sydney Place is kind of, you've got to cross over a slightly main road and it's just, it's over heading towards Onslow Square. Uh, we got to the police station and the man ran across the road. Now think about it, this is an unmarked car there, not in a uniform, they may not have shown their ID, uh, he may have just panicked. Uh, Sergeant Sanford said we chased after him, but as Sergeant Purdy reached the centre of the road, he fell heavily. By this time, the man had turned right into Onslow Square, and after dodging passing cars, I continued to run after him. As I continued to chase him along the north pavement of Onslow Square in a westerly direction, uh, I saw a man walking east towards the man I was chasing, and I shouted out as loud as I could, Police, stop that man. This must have been heard by the man as I was chasing. It must have been heard by the man I was chasing. However, the man to whom I shouted took no notice. Good old, good old uh, people out there helping the police do their job. Well done. The man just went about his daily life. Uh, um, the man took no notice. As I continued running after the man, Sergeant Purdy drew level with me on a on a taxi. I jumped on the running board. Uh, the running board is back in with the old taxis. They used to have uh, on the side of the car. They they had kind of a 
probably it's probably about eight ten inches it's just like a board that you could kind of put your foot on before you get into the car but some some police if they needed to uh, get a lift somewhere they would jump on the running board and get get driven off uh, i jumped on the running board on the driver's side and we followed the man who was seen to run into the hallway of 105 onslow square um which is kind of weird when you look at it. If you look at the crime scene photos, it's uh, 105 Onslow Square. He goes in and it's a very big, empty kind of hallway. It's very wide and there's a couple of columns in there. But, I mean, he could have ran upstairs. He could have ran upstairs and hid, but, you know, uh, maybe made his way to the roof. But if he's thinking about it, that probably most of the doors would have been locked because these were private entrances. He could have waited for the lift, but the lift would have taken ages. He's a bit stuck, really. He's got nowhere to go. Uh, so, effectively, he's cornered. It's kind of silly when he's in there. The police run in, and he's hiding behind a pillar. And it's um, it's, just, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Um... But it's interesting. He doesn't. He doesn't come across as threatening. I think because he's very boyish, and because he's, you know, he's wearing slightly fancy clothes and green sunglasses. Apparently, um, they don't really take him as a threat. Do you know, he doesn't seem to threaten them. He doesn't call them bad names. He doesn't. He doesn't resist arrest. Do you know, he he runs away from them. But when he's cornered, uh, DS Purdy goes right. You there? I'm not having your games anymore. Get on that windowsill. And he does. He sits on the windowsill with his with his hands. Uh, uh, on his on his legs so he's not really doing anything so it's kind of it's it's kind of unfortunate at that point that they didn't make the decision to search him they could have done but they didn't and we kind of don't really know why at that point maybe it was just a mistake on their behalf maybe they just maybe they just didn't see him as a threat at all but uh, as with dear sanford he would state i noticed nothing peculiar about him he was perfectly ordinary other than he was a sullen type of attitude and that's kind of what he gives off um uh, uh he said uh, sergeant purdy then said sit in that windowsill and behave yourself uh the men then sat on the windowsill just behind the men the man then sat on the windowsill, um, helping himself up by putting his hands on the sill either side of his body. So uh, that's why we know that he's definitely there because his palm prints were there. Um, he also had his uh, palm prints in the phone box as well. Uh, and unfortunately, as we've already mentioned in this episode, uh, in the prior episode, this was when um, Sergeant Purdy was shot. Um, happened really quickly very close i think it was about three inches from his three to four inches away a single shot to the heart uh he fell to the ground gasping ah i haven't put that in the episode because i don't like doing that ah um the shot was heard by mrs hawksworth who was making tea on the ground floor as well as david bruce a jobber for the uh, stock exchange uh unfortunately because no one was there uh, except those officers, nobody actually saw the shot. So uh, DS Purdy saw it, but he obviously died. Um, Gunter saw it, but he would have had amnesia of, of that whole incident, uh, and then he fled. So the only person was DS Sanford who would have seen it, and that's whose recollection we're basing this on. So that's the whole point of this, these episodes is you've got one man who's got amnesia, another man who's the only eyewitness to the murder, and we have to decide is he accurate is, is he telling the truth but we're in an era of police corruption um dear sanford um would state the man ran between the open hall door and sergeant purdy he turned left out of the hall 
down the entrance steps, turned right onto the right at the foot of the steps. I ran over to Sergeant Purdy and then out into the street. I continued to follow the man who turned right into Cranley Place, but realising I couldn't keep up with him as he was running so fast and had a lead on me, I returned to the flats. Uh, He said Sergeant Purdy was obviously seriously injured. Uh, So the police were called. Um, Police doctor turned up very shortly. Mrs Hawksworth, who was making a cup of tea, she was a a nurse. uh, So she provided some assistance right there and then. Um, David John Thomas, who was the medical practitioner for them, arrived at 4.08pm having received a call. He said, in the entrance hall, I found a man lying just to the right of the entrance door. There was various police officers with him. I examined him, but he was dead. There were signs of a single bullet hole which had penetrated his chest. Um, uh, I briefly mentioned this in the previous episode Uh, Sergeant Purdy left £775 in his uh, will to his widow Irene Purdy and she was granted £10, 10 shillings and 8 pence per week police pension Um, a fund of £3,500 was raised by the mayor of Kensington there was a real uproar amongst the community that uh, an officer had been killed an unarmed officer had been killed in the line of duty Uh, and as mentioned as well this was kind of one of those cases where it had already gone through the House of Commons that they were going to abolish um, uh, executions so it wasn't until 1965 that it was kind of all definitely happening but this had actually started i think it was 1947 when they started having the conversations so by this point they were already getting to the point where they were going okay well this person is convicted and we're going to give him a death sentence but we will commute it to life so we're at this point now but they're still at the point where they're saying if you shoot um if you murder someone in the pursuance of a theft i.e you go to steal something and then you kill someone that's still a death sentence Uh, although that would probably be commuted to life at that point now but killing of a police officer that was that was still a death sentence um uh obviously they had a description of uh gunter so they issued that out onto the street um but it was kind of easy to find him, as mentioned in the episode. His fingerprints were everywhere. Uh, he wasn't wearing any gloves, so they had fingerprints on the windowsill, consistent with a person assisting himself with hands to get on or off the stone uh, top. Um, they were clear fingerprints as well. Normally, at that point, you only needed five ridge characteristics to uh, identify a person. They had at least 16 on all of these, and because they were palm prints as well, they were pretty good. Um um later they would find the pistol uh but there were no legible prints on it don't forget uh most guns are quite oily and prints can be easily removed by kind of just touching it moving it putting it into your pocket um they say that only five percent of fingerprints from guns are recoverable uh what else have we got um oh as mentioned nice and simple um it was easy to track down 48 hours later unfortunately it took that long um when they were at the autopsy i can't remember the name of the officer uh i think it's ds hasler or something like that um i've got it written somewhere uh they were uh, they were at the uh, oh uh, De- detective sergeant sergeant holford uh they were at the autopsy uh they were taking photographs of uh ds purdy 
on the slab they were about to do his autopsy to work out how he died they knew that he'd been shot but they just needed to double check anything and so when they were removing his clothes and they had to check all of the contents inside they found gunter's uh, notebook and it had everything in there uh so um they knew all of his uh they knew all of his aliases because he put that in there um uh, they also checked his entry in the registry against immigration which had been filed uh during his flight from hamburg uh and they also because of that they were able to find his prior criminal record in canada and they notified the canadian mounted police for his details and a photo which uh was sent over to them uh, they compared his fingerprints to those found at the shooting of detective sergeant purdy and they proved to be a perfect match uh, when the photo was received by the Canadian Mounted Police, uh, Detective Sandford, Detective Sergeant Sandford looked at it and he confirmed that this person was an exact match. So even before they went into the hotel, they knew exactly that this was exactly the right person that they needed to find exactly. I'm going to say exactly one more time. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty much case closed. Uh, I think that was it and pretty much everything they found in the flat I, I was going to do a whole thing about what all the evidence they found but it was kind of self-explanatory that you know they, they were able to find his clothes on some of Gunter's clothes was some of Purdy's blood um, they were able to find residue from the gun they had found uh, fingerprints but not usable fingerprints on, on the gun as well um, they found the clothes which matched what uh, D.S. Sanford said that Gunter was wearing. You know, every, everything was just perfect. The gun was an exact match. Um, so, yeah, not, re not really a lot to kind of um, say that it wasn't him. But obviously, as mentioned in here, this is a real era of police brutality. So it's not just London, but also uh, Johannesburg, Alabama, Paris, Belfast, various places. So... Um, I only gave you a few in there, but there was quite a few. Like, um, May 1959, a 17-year-old youth was beaten up in Newcastle by police officers in an unprovoked attack. Three officers uh, who did who did it said... Uh, uh, the three officers who it said went beyond the scope of their duties, neither of them were charged for this. Uh, as mentioned in the episode, July 1959, a Cypriot was beaten up by two police officers on Berwick Street in Soho. Uh, in court, they would state at the police station in the presence of an inspector, um, uh, the officers beat me black and blue with a stick. None of the officers were reprimanded. Uh, I think I used most of the ones I needed uh, in that episode. With the RAF officer, this was April 1959, so just before, RAF officer... Don Glean Clark stated he was beaten up for one and a half hours by officers. He would state, I was scientifically beaten up for two hours with a ruler. Lighted paper was put in front of my face and smoke blown up my nose and my hair torn out. The officers in charge would state he slipped when they were chasing him and that he was violent when we arrested him. So unfortunately, there was a, a real era of police corruption, especially in the 1940s, which ultimately would lead to the conclusions of the uh, 1960s Royal Commission and the subsequent drafting and debating and the legislation of the 1964 Police Act, which at that point, all the police were kind of their own little fiefdoms, really, across the country. Whereas what they decided to do at that point was 
instead of having like Chelsea Police Station would have their own rules and you've got Westminster not their own rules but they kind of did, did the things their own way suddenly they would start pushing everything together and going right this is this is a big force here here's another big force here and on top of that you would have the Home Secretary who's responsible for all of the police forces so uh, the, the level of accountability started to change um, but uh, the first major scandal broke uh, openly in Brighton in 1957 with headlines in the local press reporting the arrival of Scotland Yard detectives to investigate allegations of corruption in the Brighton Borough Police Force. Three weeks later, detective, uh, three weeks later, Chief Constable, that's pretty high up, Chief Constable John Ridge was al- arrested along with two officers of Brighton CID and two members of the public and charged with a variety of corrupt practices. So this was kind of where it all started started um and it's just the more they dived into it the more they realized it was quite endemic uh being bent for themselves i.e coppers taking bribes from criminals to suppress evidence and skimming off profits from rackets uh, is usually frowned on it was said but being bent for the job is different is a different matter uh, in 1972, uh, Sir Robert Mark became Met Commissioner and said the CID were the most routinely corrupt organisation in London, which says a lot. Says a lot. Corrupt organisations in London. There's a lot. Um, it was a supposed golden era for police corruption was in the 1950s. In 1955, the Daily Mail t- reported a vast amount of bribery and corruption, corruption among officers attached to West End Station. In the 1960s, detectives in London were caught out routinely fitting people up. Um, and there were many scandals, including the closing of ranks and the odd scapegoat being charged and larger numbers of officers retiring or transferring after an inquiry produced a whitewash. Uh, so that seemed to be their way out of it. You know, um, If you look at Operation Countryman, Operation Countryman was an investigation late 1970s, early 1980s uh, into corrupt uh, policing. And basically the uh, armed robbery squad would basically know all of the the uh, criminals. And when they're going to do a bank robbery, they go, OK, um, you pay us so much money. We'll turn a blind eye. We'll tell you where to go and we'll divert police and things like that um and it was a massive like there was a lot of people admitting to it saying this is what's going on yeah do you know we're, we're all taking a bribe on this one I, as he said here one cop admitted all the blokes on the robbery squad had a drink on it i.e meaning they earned money from it going right to the top but when it came to trial all of the police involved were acquitted as no officer would testify so they were very much kind of a league of their own they're almost untouchable um so yeah pretty bad pretty bad so which which is uh, what makes this also an interesting case is the era that we're dealing with that there is endemic police corruption going on at that point and uh um so can you really trust the police's statements that they're giving in court given the fact that there are no independent witnesses if you think about when they stormed room 15 they cleared room 15 they they cleared the hotel so the only person in there was the police and Gunter. And inside the police, uh, inside Chelsea Police Station as well, bef- when they br- brought Gunter in, they cleared the uh, processing room, where the charge room, and they made sure that there weren't other prisoners in the cells. Now, why did they need to do that? Why did they need it to be nice and private? 
Do you know, it, it, they admitted that that's why they did it, but why did they need to do that? So they're... And the Chelsea Police Station, as mentioned, really kind of a, a corrupt police station, especially in the 1950s. Um, not there anymore. It's now being turned into posh flats. Yes, you're welcome. Right, let's do some quiz questions. Uh, here's the answers. Uh, question number one. What was the name of the judge on the Old Bailey trial? It was Justice Edmund Davies. All right, but... Question number two. How many people were in room 15 when the police stormed in? Well, you can either say nine or ten. Uh, there were eight CID officers, uh, the suspect, Gunter Badola, and if you include the doggy, there were ten, the dog called Flame. There you go. Um, question number three. What weight was DS Chambers who broke down the door? He was 17 stone. Uh, that's the weight Eva wants me to get up to, so she can see how wobbly I am. Um, question number four. What alias was Gunter using when he was apprehended at the tube station? It was Mr. Fisher. Question number five. In May 1959, who asked for a public inquiry into police beatings? It was the National Council for Civil Liberties. <laughs> the National Council for Civil Liberties. Question number six. How did Sir Paul Condon, the Met Police Commissioner, described corruption in the 1990s? It was, he called it noble cause corruption. Don't forget, but Sir Paul Condon was uh, the uh, the guy who was running for mayor all those years ago. And it was really embarrassing. Every time he would be asked a, a question, because his history is policing, the only answer he could ever give was, I'll put more police on the streets. And it became a bit of a joke. Like, what will you do about the litter on the streets? Oh, I'll put more police on the streets. It's like he had nothing else to say. Uh, question number seven. What was Gunter wearing when he was arrested? Vest and pants. Oh, no, sorry. Vest and trousers. Sorry, not vest and pants. Vest and trousers. Uh, question number eight. What was Gunter doing? I'm wearing vest and pants. That's what Eva makes me wear. What was Gunter doing when the police broke into room 15? He was washing. Question number nine. Name the two officers who guarded his cell at Chelsea Police Station. They were PCs Hannigan and Hall because people like alliteration and question number 10 why did the police say he was removed to hospital um, apparently he was simply resting and he was hospitalized owing to mental exhaustion <clears throat> so there we go folks that is part two of uh shattered memory i hope you enjoyed that part three the final part is next week uh, so I'm going to go and have another carrot if evil will let me I'm going to finish my diet coke I'm going to go to the little uh, the little coffee shop up the road which is very nice and I'm going to finish um, just going to do a rewrite on part three and then get ready to record that tomorrow Yay. so thank you very much for supporting the show it's very much appreciated have yourself a good week stay safe if you eat any cake let me know about it because I haven't eaten any cake in over two weeks and I am uh, I would love to have some cake at the moment but I'm not allowed any cake so there we go uh, have yourself a good week folks stay safe and be good lots of love bye bye hey it's Danny Pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.